Welcome to episode 28 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. We are still in France and still in the 14th century, but we're going to shift the focus a bit this time. I received a little bit of feedback that on the last episode there was actually very little about Jews and not enough about anti-Semitism. So I wanted to share with you some reflections on the specificity of the case of the Jews in the Conta, which we talked about last time. More generally, the history of the Jews in Provence, which now refers largely to southeastern France, but in the old days, it referred basically to all of southern France. The whole region known as Aquitania, where Ac was the word for yes, was loosely called Provence. Now it's Provence, Languedoc, Roussillon, etc., but in the old days, it was called Provence. But there's several threads that we're going to look at today, and it's going to require some major effort on your part to keep these threads together. They're tightly interwoven, but they can also be followed distinctly. Let me start with one of the important threads that led to the irony of Jews in the papal state of Contin viewing that area as a place of refuge from the excesses of Catholic rulers all over Europe and expulsions from all over Europe. And it became very crowded with refugees from many other parts of Europe all through its history. And there's a certain question that arises sort of naturally. If the popes promulgate bulls and decrees and convene church councils, which make life so much harder for the Jews, why in territory that's directly controlled by the popes are Jews treated better and with greater tolerance and, in fact, often viewed, particularly after the expulsion from Spain in 1492, Rome, which was papal territory, was a great refuge for Jews and they were welcomed there explicitly by the Borgia Popes. So part of the answer to this lies in very early Christian history. And I hate to go backwards, and this has almost nothing to do with France, but ultimately a lot to do with classical anti-Semitism in Catholic Europe. And we're going back to the 5th century of the Common Era to a great man and a great thinker named St. Augustine. St. Augustine recognized that once the Roman Empire adapted to being the embodiment of Christianity and the home of the only type of Christianity that existed at that time, which was Catholicism, that the power of the church and the power of the state were united in a way that became very dangerous to Jews. Jews could have been exterminated because early Catholic preachers said that they were sinners, they had rejected Jesus. In fact, they were often accused of killing Jesus because once the Romans became Catholics, they could no longer accept what was earlier known as their responsibility for killing Jesus. They had to shift it and do revisionist history and blame the Jews. So the Jews were accused of deicide, and they were attacked. Synagogues were burned in the late 4th century and early 5th century. St. Augustine came up with this brilliant doctrine called the Doctrine of Witness, without which it's very doubtful that there would still be Jews around today. 
this doctrine stated that Jews were the original recipients of the prophecies that quote-unquote prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jews are the only ones who can testify as to the authenticity of these prophecies, which are written down in the Bible, and therefore they must be kept alive. They must be preserved. And Augustine's motto, boiled down to just a few words, was they should survive but not thrive. And for the next thousand years at least, popes, when they were strong, enforced this Augustinian doctrine of survive but not thrive. So Jews could be kept in ghettos, they could be kept in occupation or restricted to occupations where they couldn't make a lot of money, but they couldn't be exterminated. Their synagogues couldn't be burnt. They were afforded some basic protections based on, first of all, the doctrine of St. Augustine, and second of all, the relative power of the Pope. So when there's a great Pope like Gregory the Great in the 7th or 8th century, he passes laws and decrees that guarantee to Jews the right to worship the right to have their synagogues protected, etc., etc., even when it's against the wishes of the secular ruler, who you have to remember for most of the Middle Ages, the secular rulers in Catholic Europe were crowned and legitimized by the Pope. So they were sort of agents of the Pope. Sometimes they went over and above papal dictates in taking measures against the Jews, But let's look at a couple of famous church councils and their decrees. The first one is the Fourth Lateran Council, which is sometimes called the Great Council, which took place in the year 1215, incidentally the same year that the Magna Carta was signed, and was the most important ecumenical gathering held to that point in the eyes of many Catholic historians. I would argue that maybe the Council of Nicaea, which formulated the Nicene Creed and which united the Catholic Church early in the 4th century might have been of at least equal importance, but certainly the Fourth Lateran Council was one of the greatest church councils in history. It succeeded in uniting hundreds of bishops and archbishops, priors and abbots, ambassadors of Europe's kingdoms and cities, etc., etc., and it passed legislation that put in place the main elements of Catholic culture as we know it the sacraments, the Eucharist, the seal of confession, all these things were put in place by that council. It was the Fourth Lateran Council that first promulgated crucial church decisions designed to isolate, restrict, and denigrate Jews. What had previously been merely local indignities were now made universal. For example, quote, Jews and Saracens of both sexes in every Christian province and at all times shall be marked off in the eyes of the public from other people through the character of their dress. We recognize here the precursor of the infamous yellow badge. It is hard to overstate the importance of the Fourth Lateran Council for the future of Jewish-Catholic relations. Because the Jews were now deemed officially servants of sin, it was concluded that they should now be the servants of Christian princes. So, for the first time, ghettos were established, and the church's total claim on the soul of the world became more dramatic as Jews stood out as the original and quintessential dissenters from that claim. You may recall from the last episode that 
It was a papal decree issued by Boniface VIII in 1302 called Unum Sanctum, which basically precipitated the exile of the papacy to France and at least the temporary sort of falling apart of church authority. This bull was kind of overstepping. And one historian, at least, calls it the most famous of all the documents on church and state that has come down to us from the Middle Ages. It resulted from a dispute between Philippe le Bel of France and the Pope over money, of course, because the Catholic Church was a big global business enterprise and money to keep up churches, to build cathedrals, to maintain the lifestyle of cardinals and the rich and famous was an important issue both for the kings who were often opposed to the pope and the pope and everybody who served with him. So in 1302, Boniface basically said that outside the church, there is no salvation. And the church wields both the spiritual and the secular sword. This, of course, led to the end of Boniface's life, and briefly at least, the end of the papacy in Rome. Ironically, it was another Pope Boniface, Boniface the Ninth, who almost exactly a hundred years later took office just as the anti-Jewish violence of the 1390s swept through the Iberian Peninsula. While Jews were being massacred in Spain and expelled from France in 1394, this pope was granting a new charter of protection to the Jews in Rome. The tradition of saving the Jews held. One of his successors, Martin V, who was pope from 1417 to 1431, exhibited the usual negative attitudes towards Judaism, but overall must be counted as a strong defender of the Jews. He forbade the baptizing of Jewish children without their parents' consent and issued an edict criticizing the preaching of friars against Jews, ordering that every Christian must treat the Jews with humane kindness. When the city council of Toledo in Spain in 1449 passed an ordinance decreeing that no converso of Jewish descent may have or hold any office or benefice in our city, Pope Nicholas V reacted with a fury, suggesting that he saw what was at stake in such a move. The bull he issued bore the significant title Humani Generis Inimicus. The enemy of the human race was not the Jew, but the new conviction that the Jew could not be changed by his conversion. This pope wrote, We decree and declare that all Catholics are one body in Christ according to the teaching of our faith. Close quotes. Nicholas V excommunicated the author of the Toledo Statute, yet two years later the King of Castile formally approved the regulation. Jews would legally be defined now in Spain, not by religion, but by blood, by their ancestry. If the beginning of what we think of as modern anti-Semitism can be located anywhere, it is here. The shift from a religious definition of Jewishness to a racial one is perhaps the most decisive in this long story. So I want to fast forward a second to the middle of the 16th century. And you may know that at the beginning of the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation occurred. And then the church held a very famous church council called the Council of Trent that lasted almost 20 years and was presided over by a series of three different popes. Between its 
first 16 sessions and its last 25 sessions, there was a pope named Paul IV, who started off in life as the Grand Inquisitor in Spain, Carafa, the man who burned the Talmud and was elected pope when he was 79 years old. Acting quickly, here's what he did. He ratified the same blood purity statute of Toledo that an earlier pope had excommunicated the author of. He forbade Jews to possess any religious book except the Bible. From now on, the Talmud was on the index of forbidden books. To enforce that proscription, he abolished Hebrew printing in Rome, which during the Renaissance had become the world capital. And most importantly, in July of 1555, Pope Paul IV issued the papal bull Cum Nimus Absurdum. I will quote briefly from this. For as much as it is unreasonable and unseemly that the Jews whom God has condemned to eternal slavery because of their guilt should, under the pretense that Christian love cherishes them and endures their dwelling in our midst, dot, dot, dot. Basically, the provisions of this bull were that Jews are to own no real estate, Jews are to attend no Christian university, Jews are to hire no Christian servants, Jews' mercantile roles are to be strictly regulated, Jews' taxes are to be increased, Jews are no longer to ignore the ancient requirement to wear distinctive clothing and badges, Jews may not be addressed as sir by Christians, etc., etc. Now, what was really going on here with all these apparently contradictory decrees and papal bulls and attitudes of the papacy towards the Jews between, let's say, roughly speaking, 1215 and 1555? So that's like 340 years. One of the things that was going on was society was being reorganized and undergoing really major convulsions caused ultimately by the unexpected results of the Crusades, which led to the Renaissance, led to a new emphasis on reason as opposed to faith, led to questioning a lot of the old givens, the old assumptions about how society should be organized, about the king's relationship with the popes, about how all of Christian Europe should be reorganized. And through good or bad luck, the end of the 1400s and the beginning of the 1500s saw a series of exceptionally evil popes, popes who in any religion would be considered reprehensible for committing crimes like incest, assassination, poisoning, whatever. And it wasn't only the Borgias, although they're the most famous. It was a group of popes who collectively engaged in or condoned the sale of indulgences by which people could get a get-out-of-jail-free card and avoid spending their lives in eternity burning in hell, and engaging in simony, which is the selling of church offices, which were very profitable, to grossly unqualified people, often relatives or just people with a lot of money, but often people who couldn't read or write and had no clue of what was in the Bible. One of the things that brought about the Protestant Reformation, without doubt, was that at more or less the same time, the printing press was introduced, and suddenly everybody could get their hands on a copy of the Bible and didn't have to necessarily believe what their parish priest or their local bishop told them was in the Bible. And they could read not only the Bible, but also new scientific treatises. And the balance in the European world 
and worldview between faith and reason began to shift. And the culmination of this shift was the Enlightenment that occurred a couple of centuries later, but was clearly led up to by the Crusades, then the Renaissance, then the Protestant Reformation, and the church's fear, because initially it didn't know, were all Christians going to defect to Protestantism? Maybe only a third of Christians, maybe two-thirds. They didn't know, and they were very insecure and very frightened by this. They were, after all, human, despite multiple proclamations of papal infallibility. They were elected, and they were human beings who ate and drank and did all the functions of normal human beings. So now let's return to France, and specifically Provence. I need to remind you that in the old days, all of southern France was called Provence. So today, some places which are not in Provence were historically part of Provence. One such place which is very important in Jewish history is the town of Lunel. Lunel is a pretty small place located maybe 13 miles east of Montpellier, and 16 miles southwest of Nîmes, on the western bank of the Rhône. Neither of these places is terribly far from Avignon, but they are not in what is today considered Provence. Now, why does Lunel, a little town that nobody's ever heard of, matter to Jewish history? First of all, according to local legend in Lunel, the town was founded by Jews from Jericho in the first century of the Common Era. It had a Jewish population early in the first millennium, and there is an ancient synagogue located there. More importantly, Lunel was a great center of Jewish learning. It's thought that the family of Rashi, the great commentator of the Middle Ages, originated in Lunel. Other scholars from this academy include Jonathan of Lunel, Meshulam ben Yaakov of Lunel, his son Aharon ben Meshulam ben Yaakov of Lunel, Abraham ben David, who we'll come to again later, and Asher ben Meshulam of Lunel. Now, Abraham ben David is known as the Ra'avad, or the Rabad, based on the initials of his name. He was born in a town very close to Lunel, and at the time that he was born, Lunel had already assembled the cream of Talmudists. In the university there, the Rabbinic Academy, rather, was the refuge of persecuted Jewish scholars from every country in the world. It's believed by many that Lunel had begun to function as a major Torah center since the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. And into this sphere of profound learning came Abraham ben David for his own education. He had served as a member of rabbinical courts in both Lunel and Nîmes. He was a very severe critic of Mishnah Torah of Maimonides, but he was prompted mostly by his fervent orthodoxy and his fear that Mishnah Torah, which merely cites the last word in the Jewish law, might replace the actual studying of the scholarly arguments which comprise the Talmud. He also lived and worked in Avignon and was one of the major figures of Provençal Jewry. He was certainly high on the list of what are called collectively the Chachmei Provence, the wise men of Provence. 
In matters of Jewish law, as well as in their traditions and customs, the Provencal rabbis occupy sort of an intermediate position between the Sephardic Judaism of the Iberian Peninsula and the old French Ashkenazic tradition represented by the Tosafists. The distinctive Provencal liturgy that was used by the Jews of Conta was intermediate in some ways between the Sephardic rites and the Nusach Ashkenaz, and was in some ways closer to the Italian rites than to either one of the others. After the French Revolution, when the Conta was annexed by France, the Provençal rite was replaced by the Portuguese Sephardic liturgy, which is still used by the Jews of Carpentras today. One of the great Chachmei Provence was a man named Gersonides in English, Levi ben Gershon, best known by the abbreviation of his letter, the letters in his Hebrew name as the Ralbag. He was a great Provençal Jewish philosopher, Talmudist, mathematician, physician, and astronomer. Born at bagnol sur which is very close to Avignon, he is known to have been both at Avignon and Orange during his life and is believed to have died in 1344, although Zacuto asserts that he died in Perpignan in 1370. He was a strict Aristotelian and sort of a controversial figure in both Jewish circles and Christian circles. In some ways, he was a rebel, and in other ways, he was a typical product of his region and his time. I want to conclude with a recommendation for further reading. There's a wonderful article that appeared in Commentary Magazine in March 1959, of which not a word needs to be changed, called The Four Holy Communities, The Jewries of Medieval Provence, by a man named Alan Temko, A-L-L-A-N-T-E-M-K-O. He writes in brilliant detail and with amazing descriptiveness and vividness about life in medieval Provence, and particularly the four kihilot the four holy communities of the Conta. We talked about these briefly last week. There is a museum in Cavaillon to the Jews of the Conta, who are also known as the Pope's Jews. In Carpentras, you can find a synagogue built in 1343, which is the oldest in France and still active. In the basement, you can see the remains of an ancient mikveh and a matzah bakery. Outside of town is a Jewish cemetery dating back to the 14th century. The synagogue of Cavaillon has a beautiful interior, but is no longer active. It now hosts the Museum of the Jews of the Contat. The third of these cities, Lille-sur-la-Sorgue, no longer has much evidence of its Jewish history, other than a few street names and a Jewish cemetery located slightly out of town. The main community, obviously, is Avignon, where the current synagogue, built in 1846, is on the site of the 13th century original. It holds daily services, there's a matzah bakery next door, and very nearby is the site of the old ghetto, marked by the Jewish street. So even as Jews were expelled from other parts of France periodically, or tortured by crippling taxes periodically. Here in the Conta, they were protected by the person of the Pope, who, true to his tradition and true to the teachings of St. Augustine, protected to at least some degree the Jews who were directly under his control. 
And we will take up the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, the religious wars between Protestants and Catholics, and how all that affected Jews in France, and eventually how the character of anti-Semitism in France morphed from this classic Christian, papal-centered theological anti-Semitism to a very new kind of sort of ethno-economic anti-Semitism in the 19th century. Thanks for bearing with me, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.